This podcast is a frank discussion on sexual assault. If you are in the USA for free and confidential help, call 1-800-865-HOPE in Australia for confidential counseling and support in cases of sexual assault or abuse. Please call 1-800-RESPECT. Hello and welcome to Open Stance. This is Tracy Smith, and today I am joined by John Michael Lander. John Michael is a former international U.S. springboard and platform diver. After his competitive diving career, John Michael went on to pursue a career in entertainment as an actor, where he is known for roles in television, film, and theater. John Michael is also known for his work as an author, coach, public speaker, and teacher. Currently, John Michael is pursuing his PhD in education in curriculum instruction and assessment. Additionally, John Michael is passionately committed to building his Arbonne business to promote good health and wellness for all. Today, we hear from a very personal side of John Michael's life. He is a fierce advocate for survivors of sexual abuse and their supporters. John Michael's life story includes the harrowing experience of surviving the grooming process and subsequent years of sexual abuse at the hands of his coaches, mentors, and benefactors. John Michael takes us on a raw and personal journey through his experience of grooming and sexual abuse as a young male athlete in the tough years confronting the aftermath and trauma of these crimes. It is with remarkable focus and purpose that John Michael shares his voice in support of all survivors and those people with a survivor in their life. It is my honor and privilege to welcome John Michael Lander to Open Stance. All right, John Michael Lander, thanks for being here. Um, Where are you zooming in from today? I'm coming in from Kettering, Ohio, which is outside of Dayton, Ohio, in the U.S. Fantastic. And John Michael, um, I just... Right before we jumped on this podcast, um, you were confirming what time it was going to be on if it was today you've had a big emotional week um how are you feeling about today what happened this week um and why is it why is it important for you to be here today um it's interesting because it's like you know your week will start out and there's nothing planned for the week and so you're thinking oh i'm not going to be able to do anything except for you know your your normal everyday life and then all of a sudden things just start piling up. You know, I, I was talking to a, a woman in Switzerland about a male trafficking. And um, then I was talking to someone in Canada and they all just come in at the same time, it seems like, and it's exciting. And then I think there's those moments that after you, 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 you talk to someone, then there's the, the, the aftermath where you think, okay, how am I feeling? As you go and just take your, care of your self-care and then all of a sudden things will come up. You know, little triggers have been triggered and you're like, okay, I, I don't want to be known as the male survivor in this. I want to be known as me. But then that's the ticket that gets people talking to you. And so it's like, you know, do we, do we wear the label with pride, which I think we should, but yet I still have that, that, that struggle with the word survivor because it attaches back to the events to me because that's how I have connected it. Do you know what I mean? And so that's, that's where I'm working on it now because no one's gonna just talk to me for who I am, but they will talk to me because I'm the male survivor. 
So tell us what abuse. what are these what are these organizations and news companies calling you for? What is it that they want to talk to you about? Well, I had a great opportunity to talk to Canada on the CBC and the City News about Kyle Beach and how his reaction in his uh, video that he passed sent out and um, what he was going through and my interpretation of that. And that was really kind of a really cool event to go through. And then tell, us, um, tell our listeners really quickly who Kyle Beach is. Yes, Kyle Beach is a young man, hockey player, pro hockey player from the Black Box in Chicago, who was sexually abused by his video director and 10 years ago. And he brought this forward and nobody helped him. And he kept pressing and finally it all started to come out and he finally got to be heard. And he, he finally got to change his name from John Doe to his real name. And I think that's a huge step. And I think we need to do that. And I think this story was parallel because I'm in a situation where I am John Doe 162, the last uh, complainant, I guess you would say, it, or plaintiff of this issue with Ohio State and the doc there. And my case has been dismissed recently because of the fact of the statute of limitation and the fact that I was a teenager taken into the university and they don't want to open that can of worms. They've just limited it to the students of Ohio State or graduates from Ohio State. And this is the first time I'm able to speak openly about it. So I've been under this whole protective non-disclosure thing lately. So and in to a be similar able to way. say it just right now, I felt this freedom. Oh my God, thank you for letting me share. So yeah, it's 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 strange being known as John Doe, but then being known as John Doe, the last plaintiff in this case is also just this tag that's been put on. And um, I, I don't know where, where it's gonna go from here. Uh, I'm talking to state representatives. Um, I just want everyone to know that this was happening to men under age. And people need to know that organizations are not just dealing with adult students, but these are, I'm not, I'm sure I'm not the only one, you know? And then there's the whole issue that the doctor was a part of a larger, larger group of men, of professionals who would, who would take like five or six students and athletes to help them through their careers as long as they pass them around to these people. Wow, that's incredible. And then there's also this stories coming up with University of Michigan football players. So you've got John Vaughn, who is a very prominent voice right now, who was also a John Doe until very recent, recently, and Matt Schembechler. And yes. um, so, so when these organizations um, are coming to you, John Michael, um, give us a little history on how, who you are then and how they have found you as a voice, what you have been doing um, since your time as a diver um, on the international level. And um, you obviously have a message to share that um, um, is, is very important from the male perspective. So what is it, um, I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is, the male voice does not have a platform so much as, say, the Me Too movement right now. Um, and yet we're seeing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of male voices coming up through 
the different sporting organizations and all of this. What needs to be happening right now? Um, these organizations are not believing anybody. We have seen that the top executives, the presidents, the general managers shove these allegations under the rug. How, when people say you must speak up, are we supposed to help young males deal with that when this is the response that has happened time and time again, and whether it's in um, you know, USA Gymnastics or, or the hockey or the football or the diving, um, this is a really, really um, scary thing to speak up, number one, and yet you see organizations that just decide, well, we won't deal with that until after the Stanley Cup or um, never. Right. So what well, what is your all, advice right now as, as a male? And you know it's so important to speak up, and yet you are just crushed under these institutions and organizations in sport. Well, first of all, I think it's the location that I'm at. I think it's in the US. Um, Australia, England, and even Canada are so much further ahead of us dealing with males and sexual abuse in sports. There are people that are listening to, there, 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 there's um, policies being made to protect children and, and all this stuff is moving forward faster than here in the US. In the US, um, I, this again, it's only my opinion, is that the organizations and the national governing bodies of each sport are more important, more, they're more interested in the, their salaries, let's be frank, let's just cut, cut to it. They're more interested in keeping their salaries and their pay and their position than they are about the athletes. They're worried about their branding for the sport, the, the, the sponsorship that is coming in. If there's a scandal, they'll lose that or they fear that they will lose that. And we have seen a little bit of that happen with the US gymnastics. And so all these NGBs are protecting themselves. And so if we can keep the stories under wrap, then nobody's care about what people just what I think happened with the Stanley Cup and the Blackhawks than they were about taking care of Kyle Beach and his issues. Now, here's my thing about Kyle Beach. I don't think he was the only one. I, I really have a hard time, and, and I'm sure you understand too, if a predator has been getting away with this for a while, there's more than one. And we also know that there was the antics in the locker room where they, they, they made fun of him and they, and they teased with him and joked with him. And that could be a lot of other things where they, you know, the people who were doing that were covering something up. We don't know. But I have a hard time believing that he is the sole only hockey player, you know, that was being abused in this way. I do know other hockey players on other teams that have come out. Um, what is it? The Survivors for Change are a group of hockey players that have come forward and created a, an organization just like the uh, Army of Survivors have done from the gymnastics world. So I think that's really the big issue. And so they're more, they're, they're looking out for themselves. You know, um, how long was Nasser able to uh, abuse young children and women and, and even men, which we don't talk about. There were male gymnasts that were abused by this man. No one talks about those. So that's a, that's a really interesting lead into a question around um, why is it such a taboo su subject? And this is something that you can speak to. Um, and again, as a taboo subject, that's 
keeping people in silence, right? So can, can we talk a little bit about that? Why is it like that? And then what can be done to help break that so that people aren't living for 10 years and maybe a lifetime yeah. in the silence of abuse? Well, first of all, I think our society has created this barrier. Um, since the time we were born, we are basically groomed by our parents, our, our teachers, our doctors, our, our coaches, our churches, everybody's telling us what we're to believe and what we're to, to think. And the whole idea that men have to be a certain way. Men cannot be weak. Men are not supposed to cry. And I'm sure as an athlete yourself, you've heard that in, 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 in practices where the coach says, don't be a crybaby, stop crying. <laughs> be a man and you know and you're like okay what does that mean and so our society really is still in that place and we still have the big boy at the top big brother is controlling the whole whole program for us here in the united states and they hold the power and the way that they hold the power is also by telling us that this is not possible you know um i grew up being told that men cannot be sexually abused although i was experiencing it every day basically and um and being told that if it did happen it was my fault so then there becomes this shame so we have men have this incredible shame that if they ever let this happen it was they caused it they they allowed it to happen or they should have fought they should have fought back or they should have had some kind of i i don't know how to explain masculine anxiety situation coming out so that they could fight you know and the thing is, is when people are, are being abused, especially the first time, we don't know what to do. Our, our bodies go into a state of complete inability, I can't even think of words, inability to move. It's a frozen state and you're sitting there and your mind's trying to catch up thinking, is this really happening? Why is this happening? What did I do wrong? Did I cause this? And so you're getting all these thoughts going through your head and, you, and, and you, you're frozen. And, you know, there, there, Dr. Hopper talks about this in his, his program about sex abuse and the way it affects the brains and, and how it can really just cause us in this flight fight mode that we freeze, we panic. It's like the deer in the headlights. We're stuck. We can't move because we can't believe it's happening. So I think our society is doing it. And the more that we talk about it, the more that people like Kyle and these other guys jump forward and put a name to things happening. You froze a little bit. We're frozen. Are we okay? Are we back? We got kind of frozen there. Okay. I was like, oh no. No. So that that's it. That's a convoluted kind of explanation, but it's how we're brought up. It's how our fathers were brought up and how their fathers were brought up that men have to be this way. And that's one of the other things that I I truly believe, and I'm speaking out now, is that it's easy to hide a male sexual abuse than it is female sexual abuse because men won't talk about it. It's easier to get away with it because uh, we're all taught that it's not really happening, you know, and it's not really sex because it's, you can't have sex with another guy. Right. You know, that kind of belief is what we have. And what's the, I've read so much about all the different myths that surround male sexual violence and abuse. And, and one of them is, um, please talk about, um, these are young males so many times, maybe first sexual experiences, so not understanding that relationship anyway. And then as a male, if you're physically aroused, 
um, during assault or violence. I, I see that come up all the time and it just seems unimaginable to me what a young boy would be feeling when they're having, you know, going through puberty for the first time and dealing with erection and all of that. And then you, you know, you compound that with a sexual assault, um, how debilitating that would be for a young man. And, and, and again, I can only speak out of my experience. It, it, it's the worst time. And I, I'm trying to think of the right way to say this because it, at, when I was at that age, when 15 was when it started to happen to me and I was going through the puberty and I had not been with anybody until this started. And when someone touched me, it didn't matter who it was, man or a woman, the, the arousal happened. And also when the fear sets in, arousal can happen. So then what we start thinking is that, oh my God, this must mean that I must be gay. This must mean I, if the perpetrator is a male, what does this mean to me? And so your, your mind is starting to question all this stuff because th these are things you didn't think about. I mean, I, 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 people used to joke with me with the fact that I was engaged when I was in kindergarten with my girlfriend, Mary Beth, and we were gonna get married. I, I mean, I had girlfriends all the way through school until this started to happen. And then when this happened, I said, there must be something wrong with me because I must have let this happen. And um, there's other reasons that added to those thoughts, but uh, it's, it's really a confusing time. And to climax in a situation like that is even more detrimental because then you've lost total control. And I remember that later on, since my situations was re repeating and constantly happening, I found a way that if I could get them to climax before me, then it wasn't, it wasn't really sex. It didn't matter. I, in my head, I can just push that aside and say, oh, God, that's fine. It didn't happen because I, I didn't lose my control. They lost their control. And you're telling and that me was this. A survival method. And you're telling me, I've just heard you say you were 15 years old. You haven't had a sexual experience yet. And now you are at this incredibly vulnerable young age having to strategize in your mind about how this sexual relationship is going to work with your abuser that to me it it's mind-blowing to hear you say that those are the things that are going on in your head when you're an international competitive diver which is what you're supposed to be focused on for 100 percent of your time and to have this tidal wave of everything else going through your mind at this young age is extraordinary to hear you say and to know that this is going on um, all the time at this level with the um, at this age which is when these when young boys are so vulnerable so getting this message out is so critical um, in terms of just having no experience in a physical relationship, never mind an abusive and violent one. And again, um, there, there are a couple of things I want to hit on here really quickly because young men, and we're just going to talk about men at this moment, um, are, are abused by women, older women as well at this time. There, there are several cases uh, in a school that's, that I used to work at, we had three sophomore boys, 15, 16, who were being abused by a substitute teacher. And the only reason everyone found out about it is that the boys kind of bragged about it and that 
the, their, their friend girls, the girlfriends heard about it and reported it. Otherwise we would never know, you know, because there was this vibrato about it that they got the substitute teacher. And it still is abuse. And I don't think people realize that it, uh, a, a teenager's brain does not fully developed until, you know, in their twenties, especially for men. And so, you know, they all brag about it, but when the teacher went to court, the boy's parents wrote letters in her defense because she made their son men. That was the defense and she got off. That's how our society is because it's all, it's, it's, you got the teacher, that was good. But also, um, I, I forgot, I got kind of lost there what we were talking about. What was your question again? I'm so sorry. No, about that's all right. Um, so I guess, um, Mostly it was a comment on what you said and to help others, that message needs to resonate that there are young boys going through in these examples, the athletic um, organization and world where you are so young and you haven't even had sexual encounters in a healthy relationship. That's hard enough as a teenager right. in the beginning. And yet you're talking about your first sexual experiences and relationship um, with coaches, mentors, benefactors, and dealing with the fact, all the physiological issues that are going on. So I'm just seeing in your mind, I'm trying to imagine this 15 year old boy having to deal with all of that when you're out just trying to compete in your sport um, and what message and what a voice you are to send this information to you know young boys all over the world that are going to continue to go through these programs and continue to run into these predators to hear this story and to know okay there's red flags going into this world as opposed to where did you have any red flags did you know about sexual abuse or assault when you were 14 no. or 15 no no, no, I didn't. Um, uh, I think we need to back up a little bit so you get the whole picture of what happened or, or, or the listeners do. Um, I, I, when I was 15, I took eighth at the Junior Olympics. So I, I became kind of, it got my name out in the news. And uh, a lawyer read about it in the local newspaper and the lawyer approached my mother. So we have to get that whole picture going. And um, I was growing up on a farmhouse in uh, Southwest Ohio and not a lot of money coming in, but we weren't poor. So I, I wanna make sure that's clear because everybody thinks that sexual abuse only happens just below sexual, you know, social economic people, and it's not true. It happens everywhere across the board. And so this lawyer started to groom my mother. And this lawyer was a part of a larger organization of professionals who, like I said earlier, would, um, would select five boys each year and help them through education or, or whatever they were working on to help pay for everything so that they can get further in life. And um, as long as you, you played the game with this group of men, they would continue until you graduated. And so that kind of stuff would was the whole premise there. So my mother was groomed first. And this lawyer told her that uh, this was the only way that I would get to go to the Olympics because he knew that she didn't have the means to keep sending me all over the place. And, and again, at that time, we paid for our trips to Norway or Canada or wherever. We still had to pay a lot of the money uh, because we were not the top, top elite athletes yet. So I was, it was coming out of our pockets. So this, this 
this lawyer talked to my mom and it convinced her. And she said, sure, okay, because she thought she was helping me out. And so my first experience was with a doctor. And, um, wow, sorry. And they took me up to Ohio State because I had an ear infection. And the doctor proceeded to check my lower area because he said that's where infections will happen and to look in there. And so, and then one thing led to another and led to another. The next thing you know, the whole thing's over with. But the thing that I have to stress was that it wasn't violent. And that's the thing that confused me. And everybody wants to make this person out to be a, a monster and everything. And, you know, I was reading in what, what is the House Bill 1481 or something like that, where they talk about violent and this and all these really harsh words. And I wrote back to, to one of the representatives and I said, you know, the biggest monsters are the ones that come in and you think that they are the nicest people and they're helping you and you trust them because they gained your trust and they're gentle. And the next thing you know, you're in an, you're abused and you're like, did that really happen or did I make it up? So for boys, it's really, it's a confusion because we're told that you're supposed to enjoy it because you're just getting off. It doesn't matter who does it. So it's just, you know, and, and then we're confused because we didn't want to do that. You know, I remember saying to the doctor, hey, my ear is up here. It's not down there. Why do you, you know, and then the next thing you know, I couldn't stop myself because, you know, you're being touched, you're being fondled, you're being caressed, you're being everything I never ever experienced. And then they would pass me to other professionals. So this is what was going on. And yes, there were professionals who were violent and who were abusive and who um, had an modus operandi of what they wanted and they were gonna do whatever they could to get it. Because this hour or two hours that they're, you're with them is what they get. And they were usually married they usually had children that were close to my age, you know? So all this is so confusing and you don't understand. I do remember telling my mother one time that I wasn't gonna go when a, um, a professional came up and drove up our driveway to the farmhouse. And she looked at me and said, well, why? And I said, because I don't want to. And um, I said, he touches me inappropriately. And she kind of looked at me and I finally thought this is going to take care of this. I finally have spoken out, I, 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 someone's gonna help me. And, and then she got this really weird look on her face and, and she slapped me across my face and said, it's not nice to make up lies about people. He is a prominent person in the community. Everyone knows him and everyone likes him. He's helping our family. And so you need to just buck up and go out there and do what you're expected to do. And um, if anything ever happened, it was probably your fault. So then I, I interpret all this in the way that I interpreted it, and I, I blame myself. So this is my fault, I caused all this. However, when the lawyer was grooming my mother, he promised her that all these professionals would help the family if I would just have dinner with them. And that's all she thought it was, was dinner. But I, I think I knew better, of course, after the first time. But, and so he got passed around but the family got like free medic medicine, free eye exams, free doctor appointments. My sister had a horrible sledding accident and reconstructive surgery on her chin was completely taken care of. No money from my parents. And later on, just I would say maybe last year, I was speaking to my mother about this and um, she told me her story about being groomed 
and how she feels had felt so sick to her stomach the whole time because she gave me over to them. And, um, but she had the instinct and she said she had the internal mother feeling, I guess you would call, or a womanly instinct that something was not right. This was not the right thing to do. But she outweighed it with the fact that it was helping me with my dream of going to the Olympics. And unfortunately, none of that happened because by the time I was out of high school, I was so destroyed mentally that there was no way I was ever going to go. I, I, I couldn't do it. And, you know, so it's just, it's a long effect. This went on for four years in high school, every year. That's a, um, it's a really strong point to hear you explain how that slow process and the nonviolent, um, just under the guise of medicine, in your case, as a right. starting point. Um, so another thing that you said, you so you're you're confronted with medicine and thinking, well, okay, this is safe, this is right. I don't know any different. So they take advantage of that. Um, you also are talking about a ring of predators that are grooming your family um, at the same time. Your career is it you must have felt your career was threatened if you did you feel your career would be threatened and the money was would be taken away and prevent oh, yeah, your your progress did they yes they yeah. they, they told me and uh, the lawyer was the person who was i guess you would say the one who introduced me so he was like my mentor in this situation he was the one who would tell me everything and no, they told me if I ever told anyone that I would lose everything and the family would lose all the help and all this would, and then my parents would have to pay everything back. That was the big thing. And okay. I was like, well, they can't do that. And, and I also want to point out that the coach at the time um, started to become friends with me and started fo focusing in on me and started sharing more with me and pulling me aside from my team. And so his grooming started happening at the same time. And he would tell me things like, I know what's happening outside of here. You can trust me. I understand. And I was like, okay, okay. And he had been, he was a student at Ohio State at one time before he became our coach. And he had experienced the same thing with the doctor. So he said he knew what that was all about. I thought he was taking care of me and I thought I could trust him. You know, and then of course he introduces me to alcohol and to all these other things. And of course, the next morning after the event happened with him, it would be like, oh, that never really happened, did it? I'm so drunk, I can't remember anything. Can you? And you know, we'd go back. And and, and um, he would take me away for overnight trips, take me, you know, different places with him. And the sad thing about it, and this is where the whole confusion for me came in, is that I'm being set up with all these professional older men. We're like, you know, 50s, 60s, married, has children and whatever. And so I'm confused about my sexual orientation now. Here's this good looking coach who has, everyone knows who he is. He's nice, um, he, he, national champions. He's even had people go to the Olympic trials. Everyone knew him and he was interested in me. And I'm just this lowly little kid, you know, I haven't, I, I, I didn't even want to state title yet. And he's interested. So he would tell me things. And what I found out later is that he had talked to the other teammates, 
to find out all the information he could about me. What was my favorite book? Uh, what kind of music did I listen to? Um, what kind of food does he like? So that he had all this arsenal. This, this was not a quick grooming process. You know, and then slowly he would take me and wrap his arm around me and give instructions into my ear after a, a dive. And he says, I don't want any of the other kids to hear this because this is just special for you. Because they don't get you. You're going to go to the Norway Cup and you're going to the Canadian Cup and they're not, and they're jealous of you. So let's just keep this between us. And then he, you know, he would call me at night and just to check to see if I was doing okay before going to bed. And, and, and the crazy thing about it, here I am so confused, am I straight, gay, bi, what am I? What label is that? And yet this, this person, he was a person to me at the moment, was giving me attention and I fell for it. And I thought we were in a relationship, you know? And he would tell me, no one can find out because this is so special. I've never, I've never felt this way about a guy before. So if anyone ever finds out, it's gonna ruin everything. I, I will never be able to coach you again, and nobody will ever want to coach you because of this. So you're, it's so subtle, it, it starts as a relationship, like a very normal, just a normal developing intimate type of relationship. At what stage do you recognize that this relationship is abusive? Do you have that moment? I think, I think that the time that I started to put things together in my head, but I had never talked about it, was when I was a freshman at the University of California, Irvine. And I had a grad student who started stalking me. And from the first day of moving into the dorms, from what I have gathered, uh, he said something to me and I kind of ignored him or whatever, which set the whole thing in motion. And he started to leave messages for me uh, you know, in my classroom at practice, um, on my dorm room door. You know, he, he just found out my whole schedule and um, he started luring me and luring me in. And finally, one time I was at the library and he was there and um, he put a note in the back of my pocket. And I was like, you know, um, and I remember taking the note out and said, meet me here at eight o'clock and don't be late. And it was not an address or anything, but it was like this little map. I was intrigued because I thought, oh my God, this is kind of different. I've never had this happen before. So I went. And so now I've got myself already feeling guilty that I went. But it was the fact that he had drugged me at the time, kind of similar to your story. And um, which I didn't know because I, at that point, I, he offered me wine and he kind of said, wow. you got to drink it. So I did. And the next thing you know, um, I'm gone. I don't remember anything. And then I wake up you know, in the, the wooded area off, on campus and uh, just a mess. And then I had to go to the medical center. And it was in the medical center when I was going through the whole rape kit and doing all that stuff and the, and the, oh, the, 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 the total insecurity and embarrassment because it had to be a male nurse that had to do the, the tests and get all the swabs and everything. And, and that, that, that look on his face of total like, oh my God, you let this happen, you're a slut. You know, that kind of thing. And I'm like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what's happening. Um, I, I started realizing then that although the coach seemed to be sweet, nice and protective, I thought he was still an adult. And it was one of those classes in psychology that I was taking as a freshman where they talked just a small, like I swear to God, it was like a paragraph 
that if anyone who is an adult has sex with a teenager, it is statutorial rape. And I was like, oh, oh my God. And then here is this grad student who was in his 20s and I was only, what, 18. And I was like, wait a second, is that the same thing? And that's when things started to go clicking into my head and started, I started to figure things out, which made things even more embarrassing. And I felt more shame and more guilt for allowing it to happen. And then I started just suppressing it even further and further. So I get, uh, that's kind of a long-winded It's not a long, it's, no, it's not a long-winded explanation at all. It's so important to hear you say all of that because there are other people that are going through all of that right now. Um, and they need to know that those are very common and normal you know, horrible feelings that come with this type of recognition, especially when it's been in, in what you're explaining, such a long and slow process. And when it finally hits you, um, like you said, you start recognizing years of that, which will just compound the situation. Um, John Michael, if you've got young listeners, if you've got teenage boys or any age boys that are listening to you right now and they find themselves in this scenario or something like this has happened and you're dealing with that much shame as you're saying um what do you have anything that could help them avoid being in silence um, for the next decade or lifetime or whatever it may be or ending up in something far more serious life-threatening um, in those moments of pure emotional torture, which is what it sounds like, what, what can you advise or share or where should, where should a, a young boy go? What should they do? And, that, and I think that's the real problem. I, I think in my case, I didn't know I could go and talk to someone. I, I had someone ask me, why did I never, why, why didn't I ever report? And I think the couple of first things that I ever respond is I didn't know I was allowed to. I didn't know that I could. I didn't know where to. And I didn't know anybody would believe me. So that's the, that's the ideology and the verbiage that I kept telling myself. But I want to tell these young men and teenagers that there are people and places that you can go to get help. And places like the Army of Survivors, um, RAIN, are two of the two top that I would say, you can contact them anonymously and just talk to someone so that you can get an idea where you are and where you're about and what you're, are you willing to come forward? I think we're all told that we have to report it to the police and that's the biggest thing that we hear now. You've got to go to the police. Well, if you're not ready to go to the police, that's even more detrimental than if you just be quiet. But we also know that silence is death. If we keep it silent, we're going to create all these other issues, which we can talk about later, which you know involves creating inflammation in the body and causes leads to death, not death, but to, to diseases and other things that are really long-term issues for us. And but you can be heard, and we're slowly being able to listen. I think um, I, there's hot one eight hundred numbers out there. There's people you can reach at. Uh, my website, you can go and find resources to get help on too. But what I really want to say is if you have been touched in a way that felt uncomfortable, or you're not aware that you're willing to do that, then you have an issue that you need to talk about. I, I was talking to a young woman yesterday. She said that uh, five guys 
came on to her, but nothing ever happened. But they all were like pushing her and pulling her skirt up and trying to pull her panties down and all this stuff. And her brother came over and knocked them all away. And so she ran off. But she said, it, so nothing happened. So I didn't expect that that was an, an attack or an abuse. And I was like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. How did you feel inside? She said, I felt shameful. I felt dirty because I had to deal with these kids every day at school. I'd have to see them in the hallway, you know, in the lunchroom. And so I would try to hide my eyes. So, cause I was afraid if they saw me look at them, they would, it would be another invitation for them to come after me. I said, that's kind of an abuse, don't you think? So it's how we interpret it is the other thing I think we need to really listen to because what one person does and is able to, I don't know if I could say that correctly, deal with another person can't, you know? And, and yet it's still abuse, no matter what it is, unless it's a consent situation between two people and we could talk about consent and what does that mean later on. But if it's not, and it's a power situation, anytime there is a power situation, a teacher, a coach, uh, an elite athlete on the same team that you're on, and they're the big star athlete, that's a power situation. And they can use that power to do what they want to do and usually get away with it. That's, because no one's going to want to and that's, know, point the finger there. Absolutely. And I think going back to the athletic world as well, uh, one of the common myths about sexual assault that I've read um, is, uh, where did it go? Um, a man who sexually assaults another man is gay. That is the common myth about oh, yeah. sexual assault. And the fact that follows that is men who sexually assault other men are usually straight and can be in a relationship with a woman. Sexual assault is about the use of power and control, not about sexual attraction. So this ties back in to your situation as an international young athlete, a diver, and threatened with the um, with your career, basically. So this is something that has been a common thread through all of these sports. And we've seen it with the Nasser and the USA Gymnastics, these girls killing for that Olympic spot. Um, you and your career, you've got um, the young men on Michigan football. You've got Kyle Beach, whose career was threatened. Um, and stayed. And yes. Yeah, so this, what, what do we do in that scenario? Because that is control at its greatest. You are talking about somebody's entire life and career. How do we manage that? What is, what's the road from sexual abuse and recognizing that you're being abused or a violent attack, whatever it may be, and having your entire career on the back of it jeopardized? We, we have to listen. I, I think we have to listen to people and believe them until there is proof that it didn't happen. You know, I don't think, I, I don't think men, I, I'm not saying that women would do this. I don't think people are so eager to talk and say that they were sexually abused. I, I think even with women, there is a whole stigma that goes along with that. And we don't wanna be known as the, the sex abuse kid. I, I, I don't really think that. And I don't think children in, in any, any plot or ploy come up with this idea that if I, oh, I have been abused. 
You know, I think children, if we listen to children and I'm talking about younger children right now, they will tell us in other ways instead of words sometimes by playing with the, the games that they're playing or showing you certain things, they will let you know. And I think all children, even as teenagers, I wanted to be heard. I wanted someone to hear me. I changed certain habits that I did so someone would notice it and ask me what was going on because I was not gonna be able to, I was not gonna come forward again after my mother, of course, because I didn't think anybody would believe me, but I still wanted someone to know. I mean, I, I was one of these, these kids that if I got dirt on me, I had to change. It's just the way it was. After the abuse started, I would not change. I'd wear the same clothes for weeks, hoping that somebody would say something. I, I like my mom would say, "Well, where's your laundry?" It never happened. You know, things like that. And there was another time that um, I went through a point where I knew that that wasn't working. That I decided I'd just drop the f bomb anytime I could. And it's kind of funny because I'm one of these people that if I say that, everybody laughs because it doesn't fit with who my persona is. So I'd be like in the middle of nowhere and just it would come out and everybody's like, what? But no one asked. So, you know, I think, I think we're trying to get people to hear us, but people don't wanna talk about it. Even now today, you know, if you think about it, even with, with Kyle Beach, they covered that up so much because they didn't wanna talk about it. They didn't want it to be real. You know, that can happen over there. That can happen over with the gymnasts and all that stuff. That's fine, that's over there, not in our area. And I think that's the same thing with my mother she talks about the fact that she was, when I told her that night and she slapped me, she said she felt more embarrassed about what other people were going to think about her. Not about what happened to me, but what were they going to think about her? Was she a horrible mother? Was she a part of this situation? All these things go in her mind. So she was trying to protect that and she was trying to protect the family and their whole unit. So people didn't think, oh, there's the kid that got raped, you know, and stuff like that. And that stigma carries with everybody. And I think girls get it worse if you think about it, because think of it. I mean, how many times have girls been called, it's your fault because it's what you wore? You know, um, you shouldn't have looked at him like that. You know, why are you batting your eyes at him? You know, all these things we come up to tell it's her fault. And if we look at the, the Kavanaugh case, when that whole thing was going on, how loud and dramatic he screamed. And yet this woman is just trying to be honest and transparent, and yet he wins. So what about um, <laughs> from your, your perspective, what would have been helpful in those scenarios, in those years? Um, I'm thinking, we talk about these amazing organizations like RAIN and the Army of Survivors, and we have them in all countries around the world now. Uh, do they actually have male advisory groups within these organizations that you know of um, from a male perspective? If we don't have them, would that have been something that you may have utilized? Is it something that we should be looking at now? Because the, the track record is that the executive level of institutions, um, the highest level of leadership are squashing the allegations of athletes um, for a number of reasons, financially motivated and titles and all these things. We know how that works. It's still happening today. Is it important for us to look harder at these organizations outside of your 
national governing body or your sporting organization or your university that does not have your best interest for the most part is what we're seeing. Would that have been something helpful? Do you think this is uh, something that we should be pursuing and part of the education bringing awareness to young athletes that these services and places are available, especially um, in particular a male advisory board. So a young male calling in has a supporter and a, and a leader like yourself, for example, that has lived and breathed this trauma so that there's that sense of safety outside of, oh, if I mention this to the athletic director, I'm gonna lose my scholarship and there goes my life and my career, it just snowballs. Um, I have never had that question asked to me and that's really, really interesting. And it's got my mind reeling. In my case, since my abusers were men, I was afraid to tell a man. I was afraid to go to a guy. And I think, I, I think when I started to really open up was with a woman or women that I felt secure and safe with. Um, doing talks like this, I feel better talking to a woman right now when I'm trying to be transparent and open than I do say, uh, I, I've done other talks where the host is a man. And there's this, this, this really unsettling feeling constantly going on. Um, it's, 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 I've been in, I have done videos where the, it's a male director and I, I would have to stop and say, I have to take a few minutes because the director looked exactly like one of the abusers, you know? And so that's, that's my personal thing. I do think there is a great, great deal of help for young men to be able to talk to some man that has gone through this because all the men that I talked to besides the abusers, say the nurse at the, at, when I was um, going through the rape exam or the police officer that I, I had to end up talking to all blamed me, you know, because I was this Twinkie. When I was diving at my best, I was what, 135 pounds, you know, really blonde hair. And I was like this, what they called a Twinkie. And I still don't understand what that means, but I'm like, okay. And so they would always joke about how slight I was and that I was gay bait was the other thing they used to call me. So I would walk into something like this and all of a sudden it'd go, oh, that's why. Look at you, look at you. And I, I, I was told that, look the way you look. That's why it happened. You know, and I was like, I don't understand. And to be told, that's like a woman being told that she's raped because she's a woman. You know, it, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't get it. And I think, I think it becomes a personal choice. And I think there should be some type of advisory board that have both, you know, and, and include certain um, people that are able to listen who have experienced it. I think a lot of our um, policies and everything are written by people who have never experienced it, who, you know, never had a sexual incident like this in their life. So they're writing these things and they think they know what's best for us. Or we go to therapists who have all these you know, initials behind their name who've never been in, in this situation ever at all, but they're the ones who are advising us to get over it. You know, uh, and, and I think that there's a big issue with that. And I think also like, uh, I used to read all these self-help books because I thought that that would help me. 
And I always felt that there was something missing. And, you know, I, I love listening to Tony Robbins, but Tony Robbins was never abused. So when I hear him say, just get over it, I never understood because I can't just get over it. And I think that there is certain programs that need to be in place that, that support and understand the way the brain is reconfigured after the events. You know, people, even in the military have experienced this when our soldiers come back with PTSD, their brains have been reconfigured. And so they need to go back and we need to work with that and help them understand how to get through their, their maze now, because it's a little different. Yeah, we all wanna get the same result at the end, but we have to go through all these different little extra steps to get there. And what? we can get there, like you say all the time, and all your, 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 your stuff that you talk about, your, your podcast, we can heal this. It's, a, it's an important message. But it's message. not a Band-Aid on top of it. It no. has to go through no. the work. And you don't heal by just getting over it. We know that. Right. What about, what about John Michael, if you were going back and you were 15, 16, 20 years old, or even 25 after, after the fact, if you were that that young man listening to this conversation we're having right now, what kind of impact would it have on you at that stage just to just to listen to another person's experience that a young man might recognize in himself? We know how insanely hard it is to talk about trauma. And in many cases, we're not ready to talk about trauma for many, many years but we could listen to it anonymously and potentially that is an incredible stepping stone where it's not some literature in black and white or some right. phone call we've got to make to people we don't know and we don't trust. What would a video like this mean to you if you had seen some other athlete you respected going through this and talking about their personal experience? I know that if I was 15 or 16, 20, 21, even 25, and I saw this, there would have been this thank God moment. This is real. Because I think for so long, I've been trying to pretend that it wasn't real. And all the things that I'm feeling, even, even today, if I saw this with someone else going on, I, I, would, I would have this feeling of like relief that I didn't make it up. You know, um, I, I remember talking with you and Kim one day and just the idea of athlete to athlete brought up a whole new thing in my head because that was an issue as well, you know, and we need to heal those. But I, 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 would, I would think that my, my younger self would say, I get this now, this is what it is. Now I can search for the what, oh gosh, darn it, I can, I don't want to say I want to label it, but I can identify what it is and recognize it is the word I was looking for. You validate, validate, validate that it was real. That real. And now I can go get help because I know where I can start to look for it. I can Absolutely. start looking where the places are. And, and so this, I would be so happy. And it really goes into belief. So the next level is how many times have you spoken with survivors that spent so many years in disbelief and in denial and in avoidance because it almost becomes this surreal thing in your life it's when you don't talk about it it does go somewhere and you compartmentalize it in a really dark place but to have 
but to have somebody sit here like yourself and just go into all of this um, personal experience that is so real, making it real for someone else could be the very, very strong starting point in their healing process, whether it's just even admitting to themselves that they are a victim of sexual abuse that might not even have happened in their own minds yet. You're absolutely right. And we can't and move think... forward unless that is, it's like with any, you have to admit it first before you can make your next steps. I, I think you've hit something very strong. And I think uh, people need to look at their lives and how their lives play out because that it's constantly trying to give you a, a warning sign or trying to get your attention. Um, I would go through and, you know, after, after the abuse that at UCI, I became an actor. So then I just put myself back into the whole situation and, and you know, the, the sexual abuse and the comments and all this stuff. And I can remember being in auditions and they said, you know, that was really good, but do you mind just taking your shirt off and doing that again for us? Cause we need to see what it looks like when you sit. And you know, and, and you did it because you wanted the job. And that goes back to where you were talking earlier about athletes are so afraid that they're gonna get passed up because there are five other people's that could be better than you are sitting in the in the wings waiting to take over it happens in the dance world as well you know and we don't talk about it we we, we fear for it in our lives so we we normalize everything so that we can justify it in our head that we can stay in the situation and and as you know sports is like a small nucleus opposed to the world and i do believe that men abusers go into sports because it's harder to prove that something ever happened if that makes sense. So it's just a constant, constant hiding process for them. So, you know, we, we just, we just got to keep going and talking about it and sharing this and being able to put a name to a story visually, I think is more impactful than like you said, the black and white on a piece of paper. Yeah. Hearing the emotions, you know, listening to Kyle Beach's statement and feeling that raw emotion that he had been holding inside is more impactful and will reach more people. And also those people who are still silent to, they may not be able to speak out public like he did and you don't have to, but like you said, you have to recognize it. Otherwise you constantly will repeat it. You will repeat the, the cycle, you will do jobs. You'll go to a certain point in the job, then all of a sudden something will happen and you have to leave. Whatever it is, we don't know what it is. I've done this too many times. How many different careers have I had? I go to a certain point and then all of a sudden I pull away, I go to another place and start all over again. And I think that has to, and I, that's why I thought acting was such a success for me because you would do a project, it ended, so then you get a new project and you get new people. And you know, and it's like, as soon as people start finding out about you and learning about you, the project's over. So you go and you start all over again with a whole bunch of new people. It's all fresh and new and it's exciting because nobody knows who you are. Still hiding in a way. Exactly. And I remember going through practices and even competitions, you know, as a diver, we only wore a Speedo. I felt that everyone knew my secret. And I, I even remember being in Hollywood and I was getting ready to do um, soap operas and had a long talk with my agents who were three women who I adored. And um, they had gotten a call and said, you know, they, they really want you for this soap opera, but the, this other person wants to have you for a film and do three films if, if, if this works out, but they want to have dinner with you. 
And I was like, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait a minute. I'm gonna have, no, no. Can I take someone with me? You know, and they, they said yes. And I had a, a, a friend who was a female actress and she was gonna go with me, but of course they quit. The, the, whole, the whole deal was off the table because there was no deal really. That was the way that they played the game. So it, it's that constant, constant hiding and, and how we repeat ourselves. And I feel like I repeated myself because I did not get the help that I needed from high school after high school. That's why I think the, the grad student situation happened. And then I went from the grad student into the um, acting world, which was a constant, you know, ricochet. You just bounced all over the place. But um, so I think if you take your time and look at that, then you get an idea of how your life is. And then that can give you a clue that, wait a minute, where's all this coming from? And then maybe you can go back and start recognizing that something happened. Or you watch something like this, because I think your gut instinct will say, hey, I, I, I should probably watch that. And then your, your, your intestines will twist and tell you, hey, maybe this is what happened. And then you can yeah. start opening up. Sure. But I, I, I really suggest if you start doing that and you start feeling that, reach for help. Don't do it alone. Um, I, I tried. I tried. And it created a lot of issues. And it made things even worse. And, you know, suicide attempts and stuff like that get it, come and play. And, and you need help and you need to be heard. And um, I just wanted to let you know that I hear you if you share with me or, you know, share with you. And we'll listen, you know. And, and maybe we can direct you to someone that can help you and get the, the help you need. But you have to open up and you have to talk about it. But you first have got to recognize it. Absolutely. That's um, very generous of you to offer that. And yes, we will have all the links and organizations available as well so that um, if anybody does feel um, ready and safe to reach out, those um, will be here. But this this leads to a really massive part of part of the trauma of sexual abuse is um, so all the symptoms that follow when sexual abuse does not go attended to and when we lock it away, avoid it, go into denial, live in silence. So then you get to the, the raft of issues that we talk about all the time, PTSD, anxiety, depression, suicidal tendencies, disordered eating, uh, the list goes on and on. Um, and this so here- also Yes. I'm sorry, we'll, we'll go into any kind of immune disease autoimmune as diseases, well, which, which is, is a really big problem. And you can talk about that now, actually, um, John Michael, this is a good time because you try, let's see if we tie it into the fact that when you go without diagnosing or, sorry, admitting to yourself or locking away your sexual abuse for years, and it's just in that compartment, but there is a time um, for example, in our lives that it comes up and you're ready to deal with it, the, the huge amount of health concerns that come with this is so important to discuss because in some cases, um, we recognize people don't know that they've been abused. It takes many more years for them to actually hear someone like yourself or something else to help them identify they are actually a survivor of sexual abuse. And then to link all these health issues back to the core issue, um, which is not something that a human is 
set up to do it's not part of our education typically this is not something we have to find it on our own and in many cases we never find it on our own and that's when the, the disaster happens so great opportunity now for you and i know you're passionate about the autoimmune and the um, inflammatory issues that come around um, as a result of sexual abuse trauma but you also have experience and um, you've talked about anxiety and depression and suicidal tendencies and, and highlighting from an educational point of view that a survivor out there that hasn't actually come to terms with their own abuse can look at these life behaviors and whether it's changing relationships all the time, changing jobs all the time, it might be something more subtle than cutting yourself or something really physical or um, drug addictions and, and all the things that come in this circle using those to take a quick look at what is at the core of these issues because in many cases a sexual abuse um, can lie right at the bottom and once you identify that then working through the other issues becomes possible but without identifying the core issue it's band-aid fixes for all these other mega issues going on that and in so many cases like in your own life are life-threatening so Definitely. Um, and I just recently been getting into this and, and doing a lot of research on it. And I, and I realized that for myself, um, the events themselves, the traumatic events themselves are one thing. And, but the thing that really is dangerous is the, the, um, the meaning that we put on those events and the meanings that we constantly retell ourselves just so that we can get through the day because once the event has happened, it's, it's done, it's over with. But it's what we carry with us and what we tell ourselves that happened. Um, and, and in my case, I would, I, I would tell myself that it, was, it happened because um, I'm not good enough or it happened because I'm not worthy enough. It happened because it's my fault. I allowed it to happen. So I have all this negative self-talk start happening. And, and so in my case, what I started realizing is that I developed this dialogue of negative self-talk just so that I can validate myself in order so that I could accept, not accept at the time, but that that's why that happened. So I could justify it for, for happening. So this, this negative self-talk, and it sounds so cliche, I know, but starts to, to fester and keeps going because our brain does not know what good or bad is information that we give it. It's just gonna take whatever information we give and give it back to you. And, and you know, like they say, whatever you think you can become, that's what's happening. So we're constantly telling ourselves this, but the negative self-talk creates this, this anxiety and depression within ourselves, in our bodies, which creates inflammation in, in, in a short, concise situation. And the inflammation is, keeps growing and growing and growing to the point that if we don't take care of it or acknowledge it and help it, it's going to go into something else. And in my case, they went into Crohn's and I was diagnosed with Crohn's. And so I was like, that's crazy. You know, no one in my family has Crohn's. Where did this come from? You know, at, but at first they thought it was rheumatoid arthritis. They thought it was this, they went, we went through all these tests and we still don't know if it's actually Crohn's. So I, I the last, like uh, last month, actually, I started this whole new, new thing of saying, okay, this happened, why is this happening? And starting to look at the negative self-talk that I was saying to myself. And I'm going to write, write a couple of things down. And at the same time, I, I started this, this new diet. And I thought that if I could get 
some kind of ease or control to, of the inflammation, then I'll feel better. Then I can look at the negative self-talk that I did. Because when I'm not feeling good, I don't care what positives come to me. I'm not listening to it because I don't want it. Oh, come on, that's stupid. And um, it started to work. It started to help. This, you know, um, I told you about Arbon, and that's what I used was the 30-day um, healthy living. And it's all plant-based and it's all natural. And it was the first time that the intestines started to calm down. And I was like, wow. Then I started to feel better. And then I started to realize the patterns that I had created, which is kind of like an addiction, if you think about it. Because once we start talking negative to ourselves, we pick it up and that's all we say to ourselves. I mean, you, you could be joking around and say, God, I just did a stupid thing. That's a form of negative self-talk that your brain says, oh, you're stupid. you know, And it's only gonna repeat what you put in there. So I, I know this sounds like all mystical and everything, but it, it's, it's working for me. And I'm happy to share the process that I've been using I've also started boxing and you know, exercising on top of it, just getting out and getting moving. I think people need to do that because especially now, you know, since we've experienced COVID, we've all been stuck in our homes and even working in our homes that we don't leave the house. I mean, you could walk around the block. You could walk down the driveway and back if you want to. Just get out and get your body moving helps the body start to, to adjust and flush out some, you know, of the inflammation. But I think we have to change the way we think first. We have to figure out why we're saying these things to ourselves, which are great signs that something could have happened. You know, if you are a negative ninny, I hate to say that, but <laughs> I have a really dear friend and I love her to death, but everything happens to her. You know, the, the sky is falling, the bird, you know, you know, she, we could be outside and um, a bird will poop on her, not, you know, me, but, you know, it's like, I know that's really crazy, but it's true. And she talks about how horrible everything is all the time. And um, it's not fun to be around her one, but she's such a lovely person that you could see that. And I, I kept talking to her and working with her. And she finally one day looked at me and said, oh my God, it was my dad. And then it started to come out. And she started to understand that her negative way of thinking and seeing the world was because she was hiding and, and holding these secrets. And she started slowly and it takes a long, it's a process like anything else. It's not gonna happen overnight and you've gotta to want to do it. You know, and I think a lot of survivors have got to want to acknowledge that it happened in order that they can move forward or else they're stuck. Yes, um, and this, another, this is another nice segue that you're talking about in the time that a survivor feels um, safe. It's that time that it's coming up and it's acknowledged um, and it, it looks like, okay, this is a time I, I know this is tough. I've got to deal with this or say it or just bring it to the surface. Uh, the support circles are going to be such a massive part of this healing process in order for it to continue because uh, I don't think I've run in, I haven't run into a survivor yet who has told me it was an easy process, not one. How about you? No, I haven't, no. not at all. And we've, but you know what, you know what, Tracy, it's not easy for the partners or other people in your life. That's right. To go through as well. And this is a, a very strong component of what we're doing here is 
we're voices and providing platforms are organizations that we're affiliated with our support arms for us. Uh, there, there are enormous resources out there which can act as supporting material or people or organizations um, for survivors that are in that position and ready to go through the process or begin the process. It is a long, a long process and in many, you know, let's just say a lifetime and it, it looks many different ways over a lifetime. Um, and right. healing is possible, but it takes support, like you said. So, um, John Michael, you are affiliated with um, the Army of Survivors. You have your own personal platform, An Athlete's Silence, a website. You've written four books. From your chair, you are an enormous support person in many forms. Um, do you want to just quickly highlight some of these organizations and the books in your website and, and what's available from, from you in particular as a male that some people I'm sure listening um, will be able to use and latch onto um, at any stage in their, in their process of healing or recovery? Great. I would love to. But do you mind if I take one moment and talk about one other thing quickly? Of course, um, I, I, I'm working on a project right now called the Ally Pro Pro um, Project, and it's about the people who are supporting the, the survivors and how they can learn how to take care of the survivors. And one of the things I, I just wanted to point out that's coming out of this workshop type thing is that if the survivors starting to if they were triggered or they're starting to fall into that depression state, if one, we can get them to tell the supporter I'm, I feel it, it's coming on, it's coming on. And if the supporter could turn around and say, okay, where is it in your body? Where do you feel it? What that does is derail the, um, the escalation of the depression so that the person starts thinking or asking them, can you, can you describe what it feels like in words? Tell me what you think it feels like. And then you're giving them a chance to stop the process of falling in that depression and start relating to you and sharing what's going on. So, and then again, what happens is as a survivor, we're being heard. We're being, we're being asked questions. Where does it feel? Where does it, what's it, what's it like going on inside of you? That it seems like they want to know. And that's something, just a really quick little thing for people who are the supporter of a survivor. Because there are, I don't think there are any programs out there for the supporter. We have a lot of programs going on for survivors but this fiber cannot heal without the support. And I, I just wanted to say that. Um, yes, I am with the Army of Survivors and they are doing amazing things. Can you and tell us, yes, give sure. us a little back or just a quick overview of who the Army of Survivors are? The Army of Survivors was started by three gymnasts who were uh, abused by Nasser. And their whole point is to help athletes have a voice and to find the places to get the help that they need and that they're heard. And that's the important thing about the Army of Survivors. They were also the, the group that, that um, helped Kyle Beach out by telling the, um, the upper management people that they needed to step aside until this was settled. And of course they refused to. And of course everything came out and then they were removed. But they have power in that sense. They use their voice. They, they're, they're, they're doing things like um, they're doing safe Save Kids Blueprint to go to the White House to help kids. They're also working, oh, we, we did a thing with Child USA, which is another really powerful organization. And we did a thing during the Olympics, which was the Athletes' Right Program. 
so that the athletes were able to speak when they needed to or feel. So which was really an ironic situation that Simone Biles went through what she did at that point. So we were able to help support that situation so that she could stand up and be heard. Um, so the, it, it's, it's, a, it's a young organization and it's moving forward a lot and it's helping, it's going international and, and everybody's starting to know who they are. They're very powerful. Uh, An Athlete Silence is, is my story. It's my website. It's, uh, it, I'm the only one that's a part of it right now. Um, and it's basically was just to share my story and get it out there and, and share the speaking engagements I've been to, to promote other um, people like yourself and my Spotlight series where people could read about it. Uh, I do know that I need to start doing some type of interview like this because like what we've been talking about, visually seeing people and hearing them is so much different than black and white on paper. Um, the only other thing that I liked about it, the paper at this point was that they can go back and read it whenever they, they can take this chunk and done and then I'll come back to it. But they still can do that with video too. So I, I think that's you're really- giving these, You're giving these athletes a voice though too and they're being believed and they're being heard and they're no longer John Doe's in so many right. cases. So what you are doing is, um, and, and so many times as a survivor, there's just a million stepping stones in the process, right? And for one of these athletes, maybe it's Kyle Beach, I don't know, that is part of your spotlight series where it, it's so raw for them with only having come forward in such, um, in recent times, that may be just what they need as opposed to being ready for a video or to be confronted um, with emotion that they haven't felt before. So what you're doing, True. and I, I've read your your work, it's it's incredibly um, powerful and significant. So what a, a wonderful starting point potentially for right. a lot of people. I, I think it's also very interesting because the people who have been spotlighted, that's a, that's a word, yeah. um, have come back and said that the questions that they had to answer made them really think and had, had to, to explore themselves, even after all the years of, that they've gone through and coming forward. And, and you said some really wonderful things about your experience, that it's important to revisit. And, and by putting it down on, on words for that person, it's a different exercise than it is just talking about it. Because the person who's writing the words down are actually seeing what they're writing and it's there permanently in a way. And that, that's a totally different experience for a lot of people. And you're, and I, and we're, so our listeners know, we're talking to a, an English, English teacher, former English teacher. Weren't oh. you at Stivers High School in Ohio, yes. Dayton, Ohio, which is a nationally recognized school for the arts. And it, one of the most profound things that we come across with survivors is the, the control to write and it is something that we can do. It is within our power. Control is something we lose as a sexual abuse survivor that we have to fight for to regain mentally and physically and spiritually everything. Um, but writing is such, such an intense part of the healing process because so many times that's just where it starts. Maybe you don't even know you're writing about it, which is something that happened for me, years of journaling. And then you go back and you realize oh my God, I was writing about this for years without knowing it. And so for you as a former English teacher, what a comprehensive uh, resource and healing technique in some cases. And here you are 
um, producing an athlete's silence, which gives voice to so many people, but also what a wonderful way for you, as well as um, in your own experience as a survivor to continue your, your journey and your healing process in a positive way. And, and to can, I, I'm a believer in keeping your finger on the pulse. You don't just heal and it's over and you move on. You have to find those maintenance plans and those productive habits and outlets and um, hobbies and jobs and all those things that um, allow you to continue your own conversation. And, and it's what mm -hmm. I am very proud of you for doing in an athlete's island. It continues your own conversation but it sheds light on how positive that conversation can be and how healthy it can be. And it's not just all doom and gloom. There's a, a part of that which leads up, <laughs> which is not always so nice as we know, but you can right. get to that healing point and you can find these outlets that you love in your life that, that bring it into a positive um, and use it as education and, and help and support for others. You're absolutely right. And, and one of the exercises that I love to do with people is to have them write on a piece of paper all the successes that they had from all the time that they were a little kid all the way through their life. Because I think we forget that we have successes because a lot of times we get so pulled down with our own negative self-talk that we don't even acknowledge what we have just done. And you know, when I first met you and I saw pro tennis player, my God, I was like, I've always wanted to meet a pro tennis player. I, I, I just, I, I watch tennis all the time. And um, so it was like this cool thing to me. I was like, so in awe of you. And, and then you get to find out that, oh, she's just a person like me. And you know, like, I wanna to talk to her more because there's so much connection going on and I loved it. And I wanna know more about the sport and all this stuff and we can get into that later. But when you go back, and you look at all the little things that you have done, it blows your mind because you did all those things when you were still struggling with even the secrecy and, 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 and the heaviness that you were carrying, we still had successes and we need to celebrate those because once you realize that you had successes when you were carrying all this stuff and now you can remove it or, or ease it because I don't know if it's ever going to be removed completely, but you can acknowledge it, recognize it, and then start to move forward by getting help and everything. What other successes are you going to do? You know, and that that blows my mind. And because, here, I mean, look, look at what you're doing. I mean, this podcast is huge and it's moving forward. You know what I mean? Would you have been able to do that if, if your life wasn't what happened before? Would I be here? Would, I, would we be talking? And, I, and, I, and I, that's one of the things we started tonight talking about how I am tired of being called the male survivor or that tagline that I have. But now I almost want to change that and say, I want to embrace that because that is what's gotten me to meet you. It's gotten the army of survivors involved with me and it's gotten the, the athlete silence. All this stuff is happening because of that. This is- And it's, it can be a beautiful thing. It if is. If we look at it in that aspect. That's right. And, and how right. many lives are we changing? Exactly. And what's important to intertwine with this is, yes, the survivor tag is so heavy and the stigma around it it's not cocktail conversation. We know that. No. And it comes up and it will shut a room down. 
Um, <laughs> however, in our worlds, when we're out here using our voices and offering platforms for people to share their voice and experience, um, that's something I would never change in a million years because I know what we're doing in a very, even if it's one person, we can have such an impact to help support one person, it's worth it. But what I love to hear you say, and, and again, when I look at you and I've gotten to know you um, in the last couple months, and I know you to be in the entertainment world, you've been an actor, you, you're an author, you're an English teacher, you're a former international diver, um, you're this cool uh, cool guy with two dogs and your partner and this, just getting to know who John Lander is has been a real gift. Um, and to, to see the TED talk you did, um, all of these things you have done under the cloud of sexual abuse survivor. So what I see from a positive point of view is that you are capable of so much. We are capable of so much. There's a message here to relay to survivors out there that are in the really hard, dark parts or haven't even come to terms with acknowledging their abuse yet, to be sending that message that there's pathways, people. There are pathways, there are support circles, there are individuals ready to take your um, take you in and embrace you and do whatever they can to help you on your journey. And in the midst of all of that, you are still in a position to achieve in life, to accomplish, to fulfill, um, to be peaceful and, and to have a really full, happy, or um, just fulfilling life. And that right. the fact that you are a survivor is not going to stifle or suffocate that forever. And, and what you're doing here is leadership and leading by example. You've come through really tough stuff, John Michael, and you're sitting here today and it's just a shining example of what is possible and how we do need to lean on each other. Your journey is your own. It will never look like somebody else's, um, but there are people and organizations everywhere that understand, believe, validate, and are there to just be your support system to get you through and and not just to get you through to help you absolutely maximize your life right i do want to share if you ever if 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 you're a young person trying to find help and you reach out to certain situations certain organizations but you don't feel comfortable with that organization walk away go find another one they're like you said they're out there but you, I, I think sometimes we just reach to our therapist and I remember going to my first therapist and it was a really bad mix. I knew that, but I wanted to get help and I wanted to feel better uh, that I totally ignore that instinct. And it was uh, the worst experience ever, you know? And so listen to your body and listen to what's going on inside of you. Even when you're reaching out to help, it may not be the right fit for you. Like we were talking about, uh, a male advisory opposed to just a female advisory. I think it depends on the person's um, preference and basically where they're coming from, where do they feel more comfortable with. Um, somebody will feel better over here and somebody will feel better over there. So I think you need to listen to yourself. And the more you listen to yourself, the more confident you'll find yourself in the confidence and you'll start to believe in yourself and you'll start pulling back and, and start regaining that power that you've given away so much.
because it's it's all it's it's in there. The power is still there. We just gave it away, you know, or we felt we weren't allowed to have it because of what happened. But I don't think it's ever left, you know. And I, I just I just want to make sure that everybody knows that you have choices, and that's a big word for me. That was a big thing that started to change my life. That I have a choice now, you know. I can choose to continue harboring and keeping silent or I could choose to say something. And that's when I did my TED talk was I made a choice to say and come out and tell everybody. Did I lose friends? Yes, I did. Did I lose like groups of people? I did. But then there's, that opens you up to meet the people that are supposed to be in your life, that are going to heal you, that are going to be a part of this, this journey that you're on, this incredible journey that you have gotten this opportunity to go through. And it is an incredible journey. Even though there was some ickiness and ugliness and traumatic experience over here at the beginning, your journey is, if, if you open your eyes to it, can be really beautiful and can be amazing because what happened back here has set you up to be this person you are today, which makes you unique and it gives you a voice. It gives you something to, to be passionate about. So go for it. Just awesome. do it. Oh, oh we, we got to cut that out. We can't just, just do it. <laughs> I'm going to leave it. <laughs> oh, good, good, good. Why not? Don't Let give up my address. Bring on <laughs> Nike. Come on. <laughs> I would, oh, yeah, let's do it. I would love yeah. to sit down with Nike and talk to them because we talk about that later, about all the athletes and their, their stories with Nike. But Nike has such a power that they could be such a supporter in all this movement. Yeah, and who they are and who they represent. Amazing. Well, John, Michael, it's been um, this is it's really intimate and personal. Um, the journey that we've been on today, your your conversation, we've hit so many points, and I know we could talk for hours. So we'll have to come back and do another episode um, and touch on. I would love thing. to. Yeah. I but, just want to tell you, I learned so much more about myself when I talked to you. It's like you're 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 this reflective mirror back to me, and and just just by the way you're listening and 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 participating validates my my story, and, and I, I I feel like I open up more, and I just want to thank you for that because that's a gift and that's powerful. So thank you. Thank you for that, and I believe in conversation. Conversation is what got me here today. And as we know, it's not always easy and can be really difficult, but conversation can be such freedom as well. And again, it, you know, verges on sounding corny, but in these scenarios, nothing's corny. Um, and your conversation today is, is um, just education and real and raw and um, somebody out there is really going to be impacted by it. So. Thank you for being here. It's um, it's a real honor and privilege to have you. And I am so fortunate to have met you and, and to have you as a friend and look forward yes. to all the things that we're um, we're talking about and we'll move forward. So exciting. Yeah. And, and right back at you. I, I, I just feel so blessed. It's like, you know, you're on the other side of the world and here, you, here we are talking. Absolutely. I'm going to come visit you sometime just so you know know that <laughs> we've got an open invitation I can't when are wait. you gonna leave <laughs> that's it <laughs> as long as i can see a koala bear 
and a, and a kangaroo. Can we go oh, see those? We've got somewhere? a few of those. We can handle that. All right. So, and do you, for, do you ever have? Okay. No, go ahead. Do we have koalas no, no, in our front yard? No. Yes. <laughs> you do, don't you? Some people do, but not us. Um, and so, for the listeners, all right. I'll have all your information. You have some wonderful resources and in, in books and um, contact points and especially your website. Um, I'll have those all noted in the bios and the de uh, sorry descriptions for people to follow up with. So thanks for all that. And we'll see you again very soon. Thank you. And I hope you feel like you were never alone. Did we take too long? you would grow